This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Greetings, dear listeners. This is uh, Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Go to thedispatch.com to sign up for newsletters, to find out about the latest podcasts, um, to find out why your blood magic is inadequate to the tasks at hand. Um, and today's episode is brought to you by Bound by Oath. A new podcast from the Institute for Justice. More about that in a little bit. Um, so today we are going back to um, our uh, global plague strategy of getting people we've wanted to have on the podcast for a very long time. And now that they are in captivity, they have a very difficult time saying no to us. And so um, today we have believe the most cited legal scholar in America, but he'll correct me if I'm wrong about this. I only know this from Wikipedia. Um, a Harvard professor, author of many important books and some books that it's debatable about the importance, but if you're a Star Wars geek, they're important to you. Uh, Cass Sunstein from Harvard. Welcome aboard, Cass. Thank you uh, for having me. Uh, they do tell me I'm the most cited, but I think the footnote is that per article written, I'm actually the least cited law professor, not only in America, <laughs> but in the history of law. <laughs> um, uh, okay, I'm going to leave that there. So uh, one of the um, reasons why we became sort of friendly is uh, we are both um, I think it's fair to say somewhat irrational dog lovers and you've become very interested in dogs and we've um, been talking about dogs a lot and we've actually been talking about doing some kind of project or book together about dogs. What, what or who prompted you to sort of just go all in on the dog front? Well, a combination of affection for dogs. As I'm talking, there are two in the room. They happen to be my dogs. Uh, uh, they're right next to me. Uh, but also the uh, genesis of dogs compared to wolves uh, is um, intriguing and surprising that 
dogs appear to have self-domesticated. That is, they chose us. And in the process of choosing us, uh, they became uh, gentler, friendlier, less scared, uh, showing less in the way of reactive aggression. Uh, Of course, they're able to protect themselves. Most dogs are in one way or another, but they have a, a, a softening. And it turns out that human beings are like that too, compared to Neanderthals and other extinct human species. So um, human beings are kind of the dogs of the human species, just as uh, dogs reflect the survival of the friendliest. And in any time of political polarization or uh, threat where cooperation and uh, trust are essential. Um, there's a lot to be uh, learned from the genesis of the dog and also to be inspired by, I think, by the genesis of the dog. And that uh, kind of haunts me um, in a time when Americans are, you know, sometimes uh, showing reactive aggression, meaning they're aggressed on and then their hairs go up on their back and they, uh, you know, don't just get legitimately concerned and responsive, but they get a kind of wolfish grr. (laughs) Great name for a band, by the way, wolfish grr. Um, uh, So so just so listeners know what we're doing here, we're basically putting the dessert up front. We think people are a little exhausted with the coronavirus stuff. We'll get to some of that um, and maybe some other legal eggheadery. But... um, um, I share with, with you, with Cass, uh, this fascination about where dogs come from and the point you make about dogs choosing us. One of the things I like about it is I, I, I've been writing about dogs for a long time and there's some Indian legend about how dogs chose us. And, and I'm not normally one of these guys who like is a Hallmark card, Hopi Indian phrase kind of guy, but I like that. And one of the things... I like about it is when you actually start to think about it, dogs are really the only animals out there that affirmatively choose us today. I mean, like you know, horses, I know people who love horses, but you, you kind of have to break in a horse, right? Cats don't choose us. They allow us to work for them. And um, and this, I think to a certain extent, the same thing goes for monkeys and all that. But there's all this data, all these studies that show that Dogs want to be with human beings. You know, it's it's how they are programmed. And they can read our facial expressions and read our body language in ways that wolves certainly can't. Um, but when you say that we're the dogs of the Homo sapien uh, world, um, we weren't bred sort of to look like puppies, right? I mean, so uh, can, can you sort of talk about that? Because you, you wrote this, we'll have it in the show notes, this great piece sort of looking into all of this, great article looking into all of this. Um, you know, what we know from those Russian experiments about like um, the domestication of foxes and whatnot. Yeah. So uh, there was a Russian, actually under Stalin, a uh, very brave uh, geneticist, because eugenics under Stalin were a complicated issue. Yeah, where Lysenko basically screwed everything up and it was uh, not allowed to use Western genetic thinking. And uh, the Russian guy uh, uh, decided, I think I can make a fox into a dog. 
And what he thought was I could do that by taking the friendliest of the foxes and having them breed with each other. And over a course of generations, foxes would become, he hypothesized, a lot like dogs. And to the astonishment of participants in this secret project, the Russian fox experiment, as it's called, after about five to 10 generations, the foxes started uh, wagging their tails for human beings. They would go out on walks with human beings. Uh, they would protect through barking human beings. And they started to act, you know, not really exactly like dogs, but pretty close. Yeah. And, and what it was, was an artificial replication, the theory goes, of what happened with dogs in, you know, in, in nature, where they would come with the, the, the wolves who were the uh, most trusting would come close to people and they would congregate around people and then they would mate with each other. And then over generations, they'd become kind of the ur-dog. That is the precursor of the ones that we now have who have things in common, having to do with uh, capacity to trust uh, uh, something I think fairly described as love, mm -hmm. um, intense devotion, uh, affection, wanting to be there. Uh, and what you said is that's really important and I think you know, profound is that for a long time it was thought by scientists that the only uh, species that could read uh, body language, like if I point over there, uh, right. even a young child will, will look over there, and other animals won't, even wolves. And a Duke professor named uh, uh, Brian Hare, I just have to have his book to my left right now. Uh, <laughs> that is a genuine coincidence, but he... Um, uh, tested dogs, and dogs can read body language too. Wolves can't. And it's because they're very attuned to the emotions and signals of others. And if you think about cooperation and trust and the capacity for human beings to help each other and solve you know, what our economists call prisoner's dilemmas, which can be lead to terrible things happening, these are norms that predate law. Uh, dogs have norms quite like that also. Yeah. So, I mean, there's this wonderful, because as I think I've mentioned to you, I spent about a year toying with the idea of writing a book about dogs myself and just couldn't marshal the brain power for in the time when I was looking at it. But I really love the deep dive into it. And there are these, it may be this, it may be Brian Hare who, who did it, but like I've seen the videos of some of these experiments where the they'll put a piece of meat inside a cage that the dog cannot get to and they'll try it with a dog and they'll try it with a wolf. The wolf will try to get, will just try to strong arm or strong paw his way into the cage and then just give up and get frustrated. And the dog, even like a little terrier, he'll try to get the meat on his own and then get frustrated and then walk back to the human and look up at the human and say, okay, now you got to open this for me. Wow. And, you know, and that's sort of an amazing thing that, that uh, dogs aren't taught that, that, that they come with this factory preset programming that they're supposed to be able to read humans. And I just don't know that there's any other animal that you can, I mean, I, I suppose chimpanzees, Probably because we look so much like them, they have these blurry things with that. But um, 
there's a social intelligence to dogs that is sort of astounding to me. And, and one of the things that um, I'm kind of fascinated, I did not know this until I read Mary Eberstadt's book um, recently, that uh, dogs, um, this whole notion of the pack that we have about wolves, it turns out that it's not a pack. I mean, it's pack makes it sound like it's a bunch of hell's angels who get together. It's, right. it's a family. And they tend to be a, a breeding pair and then like the kids and maybe, you know, and that kind of thing. And so when dogs, dogs think that they're part of your pack, they really think they're part of your family. And I think a lot of people, a lot of humans don't really appreciate that because they think of them as sort of servants of one kind or another. Right. Completely. Um, um, on Chimps, sorry. by the way, uh, it's a cool point about apes because, of course, they have acute intelligence. Uh uh, the bonobo is sometimes described as the dog of the ape family. Bonobos <laughs> can read human signals. Chimpanzees can't. Is that right? And the, the idea the bonobos show uh, signs of domestication, uh, you know, uh, smaller snouts and uh, smaller bodies, uh, a less sharp disparity between uh, male and female uh, than chimpanzees show. These are signs of domestication. And the bonobo really has many features in common with the dog. Who, who, who according to this theory, domesticated the bonobos? Uh, they domesticated themselves. It's, a, huh. it's, 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 it's like with dogs. And the theory by Richard Wrangham, a uh, scientist uh, who does it on the basis of genetic history as well as physical characteristics, says that geographically, uh, the common precursor of the chimpanzee and bonobos uh, went in different geographical areas and where the bonobos were put a premium on cooperation and trust rather hmm. than on fighting. And that, that led to the characteristics that the bonobos have that dogs share. Is that related to the fact that they're, because I, I have not studied up on my bonobo sociology, hmm. um, is that related to the fact that, that they are the most matriarchal of primate communities? So it is said. Now, what I think hasn't been adequately explained is why uh, dogs aren't particularly matriarchal, human uh -huh. beings aren't, bonobos more so. The theory is that natural selection coded for that because it was very important to control male aggression under the circumstances in which bonobos found themselves, which were very different from chimpanzees where male aggression was actually desirable. And that's the theory. What I think hasn't been adequately explained is why other domesticated species, like human beings compared to Neanderthals or um, uh, dogs compared to wolves, aren't similarly matriarchal. So that's uh, uh, probably someone has an answer to that, but so far, mm -hmm. as if, so far as I'm aware, it hasn't been written up. Yeah, that's interesting. Um... So let's get back to um, to just dogs for a second here. One of the things that um, I I'm always been fascinated by, in part because you know I have this Carolina dog, which is basically a white trash swamp dog, and it's a dingo. I thought yes, it is the American. It's also called the American dingo, and um, although they're the I follow these Australian dingo expert biologists. And from Australia, and they do not like apparently any of this talk about the Carolina dog being dingo-like. And I, and one of the reasons why I kind of push back on that a little bit 
is that one of the things I think is fascinating is if you could take, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, but you could take a bunch of Basset Hounds, Bulldogs, Doberman Pinchers, Great Danes, German Shepherds, leave them on an island, and after four or five, maybe six generations, the interbreeding, they would the the dog population would basically regress to the mean of the Ur dog, which is like this street dog you see in Caracas, in Kiev, in Bombay. It doesn't matter. That's what, whether you have a standard poodle or a miniature schnauzer, in there is this ghost of this dog with a certain ratio, the sort of street dog look, a dingo look, a certain ratio of snout to eye, all that kind of stuff. And if we stopped the you, the dog the canine eugenic program that we've been doing with breeding dogs would re- all revert back to that pretty quickly over time um and i just think that's sort of and that's one of the reasons i think my dog is i mean my spaniel is entertaining and i love her but uh because the dingo has semi semi feral you know it's 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 only one half step out of nature you see its dogginess more clearly than you do with the hyperbred, you know, English Springer Spaniel types. Um, or like Golden Retrievers. I love Golden Retrievers. You have two Golden Retrievers, right? Uh, Labradors. Oh, Labradors. Okay. Yeah, well, they're Labradors. Going Labradors are a little different. Labradors are closer to, to dog perfection. <laughs> golden Retrievers are a little too goody-goody, you know? <laughs> um, <laughs> um, do you know about this program, since we're on this? Kirsten Soltis-Anderson is a friend of this podcast and a pollster. She adopted, you've probably seen it on Twitter at some point, a golden retriever from Turkey. Wow. And I was like, why, 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 why go to the former Ottoman Empire to get your golden retrievers, even a rescue? And it turns out it's this terrible thing that it's very popular in, in Turkey to give golden retriever puppies as presents. They're sort of like purse dogs kind of thing. And the second they get too old or too big, they're just thrown out in the street. Oh gosh! And golden retrievers are not bred to be, you know, Anatolian street fighting dogs, and so they've set up rescues to get them out of there. But it, that kind of thing just infuriates me. Um, Agreed. Um, it's cruel. We are free to free to come back to the dog um, issue, but uh, you wrote a book about animal rights, right? Um, where do you? I don't want to like put my thumb on the scale. What is your basic view towards animal rights? How do, how do you summarize the issue? Well, I'm a, a, a animal welfare person mm-hmm. uh, as distinguished from an animal rights person, though there's an overlap, meaning uh, I agree with Jeremy Bentham who said the question isn't whether they can talk, it's whether they can suffer. So um, with respect to cruelty to animals, whether they're horses or dogs or cats. Uh, I wish the law would do more than it now does to protect Mm -hmm. animals from cruelty. Um, With respect to puppy mills, uh, what the particular policy should be would depend on lots of details, but directionally uh, reduce puppy suffering, make sure they have decent lives. Uh, with, uh, I'm not personally a vegetarian. I kind of feel I should be, but I'm, I'm not. Uh, to have strong measures, as some nations do, to ensure that animals raised for food uh, are not treated cruelly or barbarically, that seems to me extremely important. Um, 
to raise animals for food, I think, is not uh, necessarily an atrocity if they're having lives which don't involve cruelty and suffering. Uh, things like circuses and entertainment to make sure I wouldn't ban dogs or horses from being in those things. There's nothing intrinsically um, cruel about that. But to make sure that animals who are treated, uh, who were in entertainment, are treated well. Uh, greyhound racing is potentially, I think, I want to be know more about the facts than I do to take yeah. a stand on the legal question, but if greyhound racing involves animal suffering, uh, first line of defense would be to make sure it doesn't. And if that's not feasible, then to ban greyhound racing seems to be, a, you know, on the table reform. So I, I, this is more a legal question than an animal question, but so my position for a very long time, and I still basically, I think I'm exactly where you are, is that animals don't have rights, but humans have obligations. And um, um, I always hated the PETA, Ingrid Newkirk line of a rat is a boy, is a dog, is a cat, you know, and that they all have rights because they all have feelings. Feelings are not the only, they may be necessary, but they're not sufficient for qualifying, for having entities have rights. Um, we can have that debate, but I, I got a, a bit of trouble on the right a few years ago. Because I started thinking about it and I was like, look, I don't like the idea of animals having inalienable rights. I think it's unenforceable in all of the rest. But, you know, corporations have rights, right? And there was this talk about giving rivers and streams rights and giving nature rights. And on the one hand, the conservative in me just wants me wants to flip the safety on my rifle and say this is outrageous. And on the other hand, there's a, as and I'm not a big fan of legal pragmatism, but there's a pragmatic argument that this is how courts and the law talk about this stuff. And if you use the word right, certain procedures kick in. No one's going to think that, you know, a stream has the right to free speech. Um, but if the way you codify human obligations or civic obligations is with rights talk, maybe that's something worth looking at. And I got a lot of grief from my friends on the right and I got, you know, strange new respect from my friends on the left and I haven't revisited the issue since. But how do, how do you adjudicate all of that? Okay, so uh, uh, we can think of, of rights in different ways. So in some ways, the debate here might be semantic and about definitions. So if you think of a right, as many lawyers do, as a right of... Um, access to the protection of the courts or the legal system more broadly against an intrusion, then you can think of uh, uh, dogs have plenty of rights now. So if people deprive them of food and water in some place, their legal rights are being violated. And if you, you know, beat the crap out of them, their legal rights are being violated. The same is true of horses. So if we think of rights in the mundane sense as, is there positive law that provides protection against X and Y and Z, then uh, there are some rights right now, and I would urge, I think you agree, to have more. How much mm -hmm. more would depend, but maybe greyhounds have a right not to be treated in certain ways if they're in racing. A right not in any deep sense, but in this positive law sense. I think where things get more philosophical is uh, 
if we think that there are inalienable rights or natural rights or rights of a certain kind that fall out of a theory, um, it may be that the right theory applies only to human beings. So there are some followers of Kant who think mm -hmm. that human beings have a right to be treated as ends, not as means. And uh, whether that applies to dogs among or animals among Kantians is disputed. So Christine Korsgaard, one of the leading current Kantians, uh, who's, you know, hates utilitarianism and spent a lot of her time arguing for uh, rights as Kant understood them, has recently said that that applies to uh, animals. Now, mm -hmm. Kant strongly disagreed with that and took a line roughly like yours that maybe I'm saying roughly because I'm not an expert on Kant. The right answer might be exactly. You'll do. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of yours where animals don't have rights, uh, but human beings have duties. Mm -hmm. um, and and as someone who's you know a lawyer by training, uh, both approaches seem to me congenial. That mm -hmm. is to say that animals have uh, rights not to be treated as mere instruments. We need to specify what that means exactly. But, uh, you know, to raise a horse to be a worker, that seems to me okay. But to see a horse as like a, you know, like a pen that you can do whatever you want with it, I wouldn't think that would be the right conception of rights, but but maybe that's not the right way to think about it, in which case to say that human beings have duties of, you know, uh, something like decency or civility that would apply to every creature that's capable of suffering. Yeah. I, I where I, where I completely fall out of the systematizing mindset about all of this, um, is I am perfectly comfortable in my own skin, regardless of any inconsistency that it may arouse, to say we can play favorites. Like what we know about elephants tells me that we should be putting a hell of a lot more effort in protecting elephants than deer um, or rats. And I, I think you could justify some of that position by saying that given the intelligence of elephants and the the social complexity of their communities, that their capacity for suffering is greater than maybe rats is. But I don't know that that's in fact true. And to some extent, I don't care. I think a world without elephants is such a sadder and less magical and wonderful place for to raise kids in. And, um, you know, so I'm I, same thing with tigers. I'm a charismatic megafauna guy. Um, and, um, and I, I have no, I think setting minimal standards for all animal welfare is fine by me, but having additional standards for certain animals, um, just makes a lot of, you know, whales make a lot of sense to me. Chimpanzees, we know that their capacity for suffering is very much like ours. And so it, it, the, the cruelty of it of cruelty of mistreating chimpanzees bothers me a great deal more than, you know, the cruelty of, of treating lab mice. But it's, I understand that's an aesthetic argument more than anything else. Well, I, I hear you. And I think as you talk that once I had uh, a rat in my apartment in Chicago, <laughs> like uh -huh. a really big rat. And at the time I had a dog that was a Rhodesian Ridgeback and they can 
you know, take care of rats. Yeah. And I thought, okay, rat, you come back um, <laughs> for you to meet. And Matt and my Rhodesian Ridgeback had what was a much more difficult tussle given the Rhodesian Ridgeback's size. The, yeah. the really big rat, I hastened to add, but not, it didn't weigh 85 pounds. <laughs> uh, the Rhodesian Ridgeback emerged victorious and uh, it took 45 seconds, also known as four hours for the audience of one that was me seeing the tussle. So my intuitions are completely with you with respect to rats. I didn't think during all this, oh my God, the rats' rights are being violated. Right. Maybe I should have thought that. Uh, I, I, I agree with something you said that I think was important, which is that a foundational right for all creatures to have presumptively, not you know, decisively, a right against suffering probably a good idea. And so rats, you know, if the choice is between uh, cruel, uh, awful death and uh, quick, painless death, I'd go hard in favor of the latter, even sure. for rats who I don't like very much. Uh, you might say with res if you have certain cognitive capacities, like I guess elephants do, then the uh, meaning of suffering for you is just much more intense yeah. if you're, you know, something that's capable of feeling pain, but the cognition is less. I, I, I at least for the purposes of the law, I'd, I'd start with suffering and its intensity. And of course, if, uh, you know, if, if animals are threatening other animals, including human beings, then the animal's rights kind of end at, the nose of the person that it's biting. Uh, right. I mean, you know, I, I, and I, I got, I think lobsters are disgusting and the way we cook them live is disgusting, but I also think they're delicious. And because they're giant bugs, I just don't <laughs> feel the same way about them that I do other things. But um, anyway, um, uh, the, so, I'm just I'm, I'm trying to avoid going to the Corona stuff because it's just it's becoming so unbelievably depressing in all of its regards. Um, we can talk a little bit in the coronavirus context. There's a connection actually with what we've been saying about dogs and domestication, where one of the bright spots of the current period is the astounding cooperation and generosity that many people are showing. Uh, healthcare workers are putting, you know, themselves at severe risk, and they're doing it often with a kind of energy and happy determination. That's, you know, I love my dogs, but uh, what we're seeing from people is is beyond that. And neighbors, what they're doing all over the country in terms of helping people who are, let's say, old and not able to get to the store or scared and not in communication with anyone, we're seeing an outpouring of, um, what's the right word? Uh, helping behavior is a little too hallmark mm -hmm. hard, but- uh, uh, Altruism, uh, I mean, altruism and cooperation. Altruism, altruism and cooperation, absolutely. And, uh, you know, if you have a neighbor who's sick or someone who, I had someone when I was, 
uh, sick. You know, I hope it wasn't with coronavirus, but uh, it might have been. I had people who were emailing me every day to make sure I was okay. People, some people I haven't seen in many years, and that's yeah. just a, a very little thing. Uh, we're seeing people in small towns and large towns doing shopping for one another, uh, checking in on one another, and you know, it's bringing out some of the best of humanity. And I, I hope we're going to see a little like 9-11. And I'm hoping we're going to see um, some enduring effects of that in the period when, uh, you know, uh, for all lucky, it's going to return to normal. Yeah, I, I've been focusing um, a lot lately on this podcast and in writing on the stuff I'm worried that will outlive the crisis um, in, insofar as, you know, there's a, I mean, we're of different ideological stripes, but um, how you and I might characterize the things that lasted after, say, World War One, the Great Depression, World War II, um, I think you'd agree that there's a lag time to certain crisis things that get implemented and then never go away, right? I mean, uh, Milton Friedman... Uh, was a minor economist at at, at the, the whatever the agency was during World War II, and he came up with this temporary measure of paycheck withholding to raise revenue for the war effort, and it never went away. And I think it's where he got his phrase, his famous you know maxim that there's nothing so permanent as a temporary government program. Wow. Um, but I'm with you on this. I've been trying to think about the things I would like to see stay after this. And one of them is this sense of cooperation close to home, which I think is super important. Um, but also just reminding people of the importance of social capital, that if you've got family, if you've got friends, your ability to weather bad times is just exponentially greater than if you were some Randian ultra individual who only relies on your own self. And this is a real teaching moment with that, which I think I agree with you is, is, is very nice to see. Yeah. And I think you're right to worry over uh, certain government things that maybe are justified uh, under certain circumstances and their uh, permanence is uh, completely fair. And have you noticed this on whatever people's ideological stripes is there's been an unfortunate tendency, I think, for people to say whatever they most deeply believed two months ago, mm -hmm. the coronavirus proves it's true. Yeah. I and actually started calling it the prove your priors virus <laughs> or confirm your priors virus. There you know? we go. And that, I think that is, uh, I sometimes find it in my own mind that something I thought before, I think, oh, look, look how true it was. And yeah. I think, don't go there. I mean, do, use every tool you have to think that what you thought is not true, or at least right. not more true because of what's happened over the last weeks. Yeah, no, it's, I, I feel like some of that is melting away. Um, but, you know, I mean, there, there are certain people like to say a Bernie Sanders who is, who has managed to be committed to a certain set of principles regardless of the exogenous you know, circumstances um, or the state of the economy or anything for 50 years, he's going to be able to hold on to his priors intact through this thing too. Um, but I think for most people, there's a, there's, to a certain extent, people are 
realizing that they got to get out of their comfort zones to, to, to deal with this. And I guess that's a place, I guess we're stuck talking about coronavirus. Maybe we'll circle back to dogs at the end. Um, and before we do that, I should just have a few words about um, bound by oath. So uh, on the recent uh, quite popular uh, episode of The Remnant, uh, we had where we had uh, Shoshana Weissman on, uh, we talked a good deal about the Institute for Justice. And um, I'm a big fan of the Institute for Justice. Uh, they, um, they're they really great about getting um, important stories, uh, not just in front of the, uh, the public's attention, but also um, in front of judges. And they've been doing, doing heroic work for a very long time. And so I am delighted to uh, tell you a little bit about Bound by Oath, which is their uh, podcast, which does a deep dive into the history of the 14th Amendment that's accessible and enjoyable to non-lawyers, but also chock full of interesting tidbits lawyers will not have learned in their con law class. The need for the 14th Amendment and the ratification of the 14th Amendment are fascinating stories that people don't necessarily know about. So is the story of the Supreme Court initially, and to some degree still, rejecting important liberty-protecting provisions of the 14th Amendment. For people who are unaware of the significance of the 14th Amendment, it radically changed the structure of the Constitution in an attempt to live up to the ideals of the Declaration of Independence. The podcast is a production of the Institute for Justice, and so therefore many, but not necessarily all, of the stories they tell are of IJ clients, fighting for the right to earn a living, fighting for property rights, and other essential American liberties. Bound by Oath recently wrapped up its first season. So start with episode one and just move forward with, move forward with the story from there. You can get it on any podcast platform or simply search Bound by Oath on the interwebs, or uh, you can go to our show notes and you can find their webpage there. We thank uh, Institute for Justice for the work that they do, and we thank uh, Bound by Oath for sponsoring today's episode of The Redmond. Um, one of the things I think is really interesting, and, and you live and breathe in this world, um, um, you're one of the major figures in sort of the cost-benefit analysis you know, world and, and how to think about these things. I thought it was very interesting, since we're talking about confirming priors, one prior that really wasn't confirmed for a lot of people was this uh, trade-off of quality of life versus, um, you know, uh, cost. You know, the quality, I guess, you know, the quality of life years and all that kind of stuff, which was very big in the discussion of the Obamacare, you know, stuff and got caricatured by some people as death panels and all the rest. Um but it's a big part of, you know, National Health Service and in the UK about how do you ration care. And I'm not saying rationing care as some nasty pejorative, but it just simply is something that you have to do. I thought it was very interesting that people like Zeke Emanuel, who were very big on, put, on, on talking about this stuff prior to the coronavirus, all of a sudden everyone became every life is sacred. Um, we have to do, you know, uh, first do no harm, help everybody. Uh, almost a pro-life position about how to deal with this thing. And I'm not condemning it. I'm, I'm kind of grateful for it. I think it's a sign of the decency of the American people that when you actually put them in a crisis, they're like, no, we're not going to pull the plug on 80-year-olds just because they don't have a lot of time left. 
But I thought it was an interesting example of everyone saying, you know, hey, you know, maybe I don't want to talk about my priors on this one. Um, where do you come down on all that? Okay, so I'm uh, torn also that uh, the idea of doing cost-benefit analysis for risk regulation, kind of on record as being in favor of that. And uh, let me kind of back into your question. Sure, but, take your time. I, I, I don't mean it as a gotcha question. I just, you're the guy to ask about this. So, so I figured I'd so, ask. Uh, so if the question is, are you going to do something about highway safety that's going to cost you know, several billion dollars and prevent two deaths. Probably that's not a good idea, even though every life is in some deep sense priceless. To spend billions of dollars for two lives saved isn't a good idea. If you have uh, a regulation that's going to protect little kids under the age of five, let's say, from getting killed in back over crashes, and there's a regulation I was involved in which actually does that, the fact that there are little kids with lots of life years at stake, that seems to me important. And a fortifier, if the analysis otherwise suggests it's a good idea. If you have an air pollution regulation that is, I'll give you two examples. One is going to save uh, 5,000 people from dying prematurely, and they're at every end of the age distribution. The other is going to save 5,000 people from dying prematurely. And what's meant by that is that they are going to get another month or two. They're, let's say, in their 80s, and they'll get on average another month or two. The first one seems to be better than the second one. Mm -hmm. It's going to give people at every stage. So the fact that it's going to, let's say, give us a ton of life years is uh, relevant. And the fact yeah. that the other is just going to extend lives by months doesn't mean it's not a good idea, but means that there's less urgency for it. Now, this doesn't mean that an old person is worth less than a young person. Um, if you put a premium on protecting people of a lot of life years left, then a lot more people are going to get old. So it, it helps all of us. It doesn't help us as much if once we're, you know, on death's door or a month or two away. So those are kind of theoretical things that I mm -hmm. think. Now, for coronavirus, uh, uh, I think we're not seeing yet uh, kind of the most searing moral dilemmas. Uh, what we're seeing, and, you know, against every, I think, uh, uh, part of the human heart, uh, I've been interested in looking at the costs and benefits of precautionary measures. Mm -hmm. And the analyses we're seeing so far suggest that very aggressive precautions in the form of, you know, uh, policies that many states are embracing and the president has basically embraced, they're costly. They're really costly. And those costs are human costs. They might mean, you know, people are going to suffer in terms of their health because they're not going to have jobs and they're not going to have money. But it looks like the life savings are really through the roof. Mm -hmm. And so on current assumptions, the let's just have a placeholder, the aggressive policies are uh, amply justified in terms mm -hmm. of giving us more than they are taking from us. Um, if we, I hope we won't get to the stage, uh, I almost pray that we won't get to the stage where we have to decide, though maybe some hospitals are there, uh, do you save the 80-year-old or do you save the 40-year-old? 
-hmm. And uh, the reason that's, you know, so challenging is that to think that you're going to let someone die, the human decency thinks, no, we can't let someone die. And it's not about a statistical risk. It's about a real person. Uh, Nonetheless, um, if the question is, are you going to save a 10-year-old or are you going to save a a 90-year-old, my guess is most people's moral judgments aren't obscure on that one. Uh, Their their hope and maybe prayer is that they don't have to make that choice. So I think that's all eminently reasonable. And I, I think one of the reasons why, I mean, this this discussion is a little out of date because when I first started writing about it or when I wrote a column about it, we were at this time where it seemed like we had this choice, this binary choice of shut down the economy or protect a bunch of 80-year-olds. I mean, that was the way it was being framed in the media, the way the mortality rates were being discussed. It's the way some of it was being reported out of Italy, but that's all kind of gone out the window at this point. And it now seems, at least I'm persuaded, that you can't reboot the economy until you deal with the, the pandemic. And so it's not, it's, it's, it's a false choice. Um, but it, and it's, it's, it's interesting to me is that now, but there's a real lag time about that, at least on the right, you have a lot of these, um, and some surprising people, um, um, writing for the Wall Street Journal, uh, Richard Epstein, I think, got himself into a hot mess with some of this stuff. Um, some friends of mine at Fox News, uh, still making it sound like we have a choice of sending millions of people back to their jobs if we just simply choose to without putting the the, the pandemic to bed. And... Um, but it seems to me like if you were doing one of your risk, you know, cost basis, uh, cost benefit analysis, risk assessment kind of things, and given this choice three months ago to lose double digits in the GDP, spend, tri- borrow trillions of dollars, you wouldn't as a cost benefit analysis say, well, it's worth doing all of this. Um, I just don't know that that choice was ever presented to anybody. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, there's a large and really fundamental issue here. So where actually Democratic and Republican presidents have been basically on the same side, they've had some uh, disagreements, which are more second order, but basically on the same side. So let's uh, give some examples. Suppose you have a Uh, regulation involving food safety, where you do it and it's going to hit farmers and the agricultural sector really, really hard. We're talking about, uh, you know, $12 billion regulation, and it's going to make the food supply safer. Uh, Both Republican and Democratic administrations would ask how much safer and what concretely is that going to mean for people? And, uh, you know, you can imagine a case where you have a very big expenditure and you're going to save a ton of lives. Uh, It's going to be worth it. Or you have, you know, something where a life is a life and precious, but there are other ways to spend that money that don't induce the hardship that the, let's just say, multi-billion dollar expenditure would. I think on the left, it's often thought that corporations are going to face that money 
And, you know, do we want to help greedy corporations or are we going to help people? And that's uh, really smart people on the left talk in those terms. It's just not accurate as a matter of fact that the incidence of a multi-billion dollar cost means that consumers are going to pay more for stuff, which means that poor people are going to be hit particularly hard. Uh, There's a good chance there's going to be a disemployment effect, which means that people at the bottom of the economic ladder are going to be particularly hard. And there's a chance there's going to be a, a wage effect, which means that people who depend on you know, resources to get by are going to have fewer resources to get by. And all of the, those things are going to have negative health effects too. So... I think that's the right general approach, though it isn't where uh, the human mind naturally goes. When I was working in the White House, a member of the president's cabinet said, Cass, how can you put a a price tag on human life? He said that in the White House. And, uh, you know, I didn't engage him very much. He's a great person. And that's what he thought. But nonetheless, you're not going to spend infinite resources to prevent one death. You're just not. Uh, right. The easy way out is to say you'll devote them to something that will spend save a lot of lives, but that's a little too easy. There is a trade-off. Now, for coronavirus, a number of months ago, uh, uh, whether aggressive measures should have been taken depended on scientific projections about exactly how the growth curve is going to look. And my current understanding is that the experts said it's going to look really bad. Look at China. Now, that wouldn't mean shut down the economy then, but it would be mean do more then. So whether it would be really lucky if we've made exactly the right call about when exactly to impose really expensive burdens on people. Um, my understanding is probably we should have done it earlier and the earlier choices were the better choices, but the direction of the conversation while humanly uncomfortable, which mm-hmm. is what do you get and what you're going to get lose, I think is, is the right one. Because if you go in any other direction and don't ask what are you going to get and what you're going to lose that way, was it Shakespeare who said lies madness? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, Um, it's very easy to play the blame game in all of this. And if, and I I will freely admit, I get a lot of grief from listeners who think I am too hard on Donald Trump, that I'm too obsessed with Donald Trump and all that. And I don't think that his pressers are good for my mental health. Um, but I have to watch them for, you know, sort of due diligence, journalistic reasons. Um, but his constant claiming that he took this seriously from the beginning and as proof of that he shut down travel from china which he has every right to crow about because it was an unpopular decision that he got grief for and it turned out he was right to do it or at least i think he can plausibly claim he was right to do it they exaggerate how much of a shutdown it actually was and all that but that's beside the point my beef is is that if you claim that you took it very seriously all along, first of all, you wouldn't have messaged the way they had about how this is all a hoax or that's a media hoax or whatever. Um, but also the only point of shutting down travel from anywhere during a potential pandemic is to buy yourself time to get your supply chains ready, right? To start the testing process as early as you can. 
and I have yet to see any evidence that that happened. And um, I think that is more damning than anything else because it seems to me, and I just said this on another podcast recently, but he was sold on closing the border with China or the, the transport, you know, immigration with China because he, he likes that stuff that's in his comfort zone is shutting down travel and stopping immigrants. And he sort of checked the box and then moved on and didn't do the stuff that he was buying himself time to do. And that's the frustrating part as, as part of the blame game that I have. Right. Um, so, um, uh, this many presidents and this president more than the average, let's say, um, uh, likes talking about how great things are going. And in some ways that can be self-praise. Uh, one way to understand it is national morale building. Um, and it, all that has, uh, you know, deep connections with President Trump as a politician. But in a period that has the gravity of this one, um, to think about the problem rather than oneself uh, is, is probably good. And I'm thinking a little bit as you were talking about President Reagan, who, you know, many people on the left don't like him so much, but at crucial moments, he showed uh, uh, tremendous humility and uh, problem focus rather than self-focus mm -hmm. and in a time of you know uh things as they are now that's that would be a good direction for national leaders to move yeah it's um it's funny you brought up reagan um because i was when i was going through your wikipedia page and um i know when people say they're going through my wikipedia page it makes the hairs in the back of my neck stand up given the things that the Wikipedia page has said about me in the past. But um, I think Wikipedia has gotten better um, since the days it said I was um, LBJ's love child. But um, uh, true story. Um, wow. One of the things which I hadn't remembered about you, because um, I've been reading you in the New Republic going way back and all the rest, is it had this bit about the importance of stories. And this is a big bugaboo of mine, is that uh, the right has lost the ability to tell stories, um, or at least good stories. And um, and my argument is that all civilization is, is a story it tells itself about itself. Right. And one of the great things about Ronald Reagan, he very rarely said Republican or Democrat or any of that kind of stuff. He told stories. And... And he told stories about normal people and their trials and tribulations. And that's how our brains are wired is, you know, for hundreds of thousands of years before the written word, the only way important information was conveyed intergenerationally was through stories. And the capacity for our brains to understand things through narrative is so important and so huge. And it seems to me that that's the dilemma we face now is we, we cannot tell stories that cross over between the tribal stuff or positive stories about ourselves, the 1619 thing is I have huge problems with. I don't want to drag you into that, but the way it, it is trying to recast the narrative of America, I, I think is deeply problematic. I, um, I'm not an expert. So, I tend to agree with you. Yeah, I would say. So I, I, again, I didn't remember this about you. How did you come into this realization and, and 
And what do you think about all of that? Well, I was an English major as a undergrad. And so kind of I was reared on stories, you know, as a uh, way to understand life and humanity. And then when I went to the University of Chicago as a young law professor, I was surrounded by economically oriented types who were amazing uh, and uh, let's say story blind. They were mm-hmm. um, theorem, uh, you know, they had visibility into theorems and they had notions of the rationality of human beings, which led to astounding work that got a bunch of Nobel prizes. But when they talked about their own lives, they often uh, told stories or they uh, complained about things that didn't fit well with their accounts of what human beings were like. That is, they suggested uh, a thicker sense of what people are responsive to. And those were stories. So I think when you want to understand something not necessarily, you know, a regularity in the economy, but if you want to understand something about how people are responding to uh, uh, Bernie Sanders or uh, coronavirus or arguments for or against big increases in the minimum wage, uh, what you say is exactly right. Human beings respond to stories. And... uh, one thing that might be said is that's true, but kind of sad. Mm. Another thing that can be said is that stories will often have more in them than any other way of communicating can. It'll tell you stuff uh, like a, a story of uh, someone who lost her life in the last week because of coronavirus or a story of someone who um, was willing to endanger self uh, to go to the hospital at two in the morning to help some people. That'll both get emotions going and also tell you some things that you wouldn't know if you just looked at a you know a chart where things yeah. went up and down. That sort of brings us back to the good stuff that might survive all of this or have a longer tail after this is. You know, I hang out with a lot of people at the American Enterprise Institute who push push a lot of stock in the dignity and importance of work. And um, all of a sudden, there are people who have low status jobs or at best medium status jobs who are now being cast as heroes. I mean, cashiers at supermarkets. Completely. I see people, you know just almost breaking down in tears to thank them for showing up and forget about nurses, my God, you know, and same thing with even garbage men, you know, there are these great viral videos out there, these garbage men, you know, talking about uh, sanitation workers, you know, I'm not trying to be pejorative, right? but if the stories of these people being heroic because they showed up to work at the Piggly Wiggly or showed up to do takeout and delivery stuff, if 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 that outlives this and it gives them a new sense of self-worth and of respected status, that will be a wonderful thing, it seems to me. Completely. I mean, I was at the grocery store the other day and the cashiers, just as you say, and I'm sure this is happening all over the country, uh, everybody was thanking them and yeah. thinking accurately that they're risking themselves 
and you know people have to eat so it's pretty important that they're willing to do that truck drivers too i mean truck drivers are this amazing heroic profession in all of this in ways that you know like they were heroic in world war ii but they got outshined by people who are actually on the front lines fighting right now they you know sort of are i mean that stuff i think is is incredibly important um um, so there's one last thing, you know, so, um, I've been on a, something of an ideological journey of the last few years. And, uh, sometimes I've discovered that my, that I'm more committed to my priors than I was before. I'm just less committed to the political parties and the partisan nonsense. And then there are other things where I have been nudged along a little bit. And I bring that, I use that word advisedly because when you and, um, I can't remember your partner on this. When the, Taylor, Dick Taylor. Yeah, with Taylor. When you first came out with the book Nudge, man, did I not like the idea. And I really didn't like the idea. It, um, it brought out the Tea Party guy in me. Mm. And partly because of the story of the successes of nudging and also just because of the, um, my understanding that, you know, my date, my deeper appreciation that all public, that to govern is to choose. And so if you're going to make a choice one way or the other, nudging people towards productive things isn't as terrible as I once thought it was. But, um, anyway, um, where does nudging stand right now and how do you think it kind of, and why don't you explain what it is and how it fits into this whole place that we're in these days. Okay. So the basic idea is that um, uh, sometimes life is challenging to navigate, especially if you're in an unfamiliar setting. And if you get something like a GPS device that helps you get where you want to go, that's good. Now notice with the GPS device, there are two things that are freedom preserving. One is you can reject its advice. You can say, look, I know the direction uh, that I prefer or there's something that's prettier. And so to heck with you, GPS device. Or you can um, decide, this is the second point, you decide where the ultimate destination is and the GPS serves you. It doesn't serve itself. So nudges are typically like GPS devices, something like a, uh, an airport. There used to be airports, I understand, <laughs> but uh, which would tell you how to get to the gate or how to get to stores or where the restrooms are. Those are all nudges. Or uh, something like a nutrition facts panel on food is, uh, is a nudge. Uh, you can say, I don't care that it has all these ingredients. I really like the peanut butter. Or you can say, okay, I've just been informed and I'm going to get something else instead. Calorie labels are nudges also. Whether they work is a completely fair question, but they are. People are being automatically enrolled into 401k plans. And whether that's a good nudge or not, it's definitely a nudge. Uh, there are a bunch of people who are automatically enrolled, if they're poor, into free lunch and breakfast programs for little kids. And whether that's a good program or not, the nudge is just designed to make sure that it works. Uh, so where we are in the world right now is that these freedom-preserving interventions, which people can ignore, have gotten super popular in you know, Denmark and Germany and the United Kingdom and Canada and the United States. And my own experience in government was that the things that divided people 
like climate change regulations and air pollution regulations and the Affordable Care Act and such, they almost never included the, these things. So mm -hmm. the word nudge in a way is off-putting, I think. It's just, you know, someone's, you know, putting their elbow into you and how, how wonderful is that? Uh, not so much. But the concrete policies generally are uh, prospering. And sometimes they do a little good. Sometimes they do a lot of good. Sometimes they're uh, mistaken and, and not good. Um, in the coronavirus pandemic, we're seeing a lot of nudging. So uh, sometimes governments are self-consciously thinking uh, people need to, their, their conscience needs to be triggered so that they, they stay at home and they realize they're uh, protecting others against a risk that they might be inflicting on them. Or people are being nudged to stay away from each other in public places, you know, uh, a yard and a half or two yards away. Uh, wash your hands. There's a lot of nudging going on about that. And there's recent work uh, just published in academic journals about which kind of nudges work in connection with pandemic-related uh, risk reducers. Uh, it's not going to, you know, eliminate the problem, but if it saves if one or another interventions that have nudge-like features, save some lives. They're so inexpensive and so non-coercive. Uh, they're probably a uh, a net plus. So I should say that one thing Thaler and I were thinking about in connection with nudge is really compatible with stuff that you've written about and people on the right more than the left for sure have written about, which is vaguely Hayekian. Mm -hmm. People go their own way. And so I like to think that uh, a nudge as opposed to a mandate, and mandates do have a place, is recognizing that individuals often know where they want to end up. And sometimes they have a really good sense of how to get there. And so they can say to the, the government or the hospital's GPS, uh, that's not for me, not that, not that one. Uh, when you were talking about when you, your first two or three examples of nudges, I never really, I mean, I see your point that they're nudges, but um, I never really saw them that way because, you know, truth and labeling is just providing people information to let them go their own way, right? The, the, the nudging stuff that, again, I think I was wrong. I'm just conceding that. But what bothered me was this sort of nanny state idea of government laying out the cheese sent through the maze for the mice so that the mice go the way they want and because that's better for them. And without being fully clear to the people that you're doing that. And so, but at the end of the day, you know, I, I, we don't need to talk about Adrian Vermeule, but I mean, the, the social solidarity communitarian guy in me says, it is manifestly true. It's not a matter of opinion. It is manifestly true that if you're going to give, if, if, if you're going to have a 401k system, that it is better that people be automatically enrolled, the default position should be they're enrolled in it. And if they want to get out, they can, but that nudge makes sense to me, you know? And that's that, but the Hayekian point, I like that you brought it back to that, is that if you're, as long as you give information to people, the nudging just doesn't bother me as much as it used to, you know, and I think that the information part is important, though.
Yeah, so I'd emphasize two things, one of which I think was in our book, one of which I you know, thought a lot about since, and I hope I'm doing better on it now than, than then. So one is not just just defined as an intervention that preserves freedom of choice, but steers people in a particular direction. You could define it in other ways, but if you have a warning, uh, you know, a pretty aggressive one is like the graphic warnings for cigarettes that mm -hmm. the government just actually uh, finalized. That's, that's, people can smoke, but they're going to see a pretty graphic warning before they do. Or you can just say, warning, you know, uh, wash your hands in this current environment or warning on the beach. Uh, those are transparent and educative, but they preserve freedom of choice. Mm -hmm. So those are just defined as nudges. Uh, to your point about the cheese, uh, I recently did a book whose subtitle is Toward a Bill of Rights for Nudging. And it grows partly out of a survey of 17 countries just trying to find out what citizens find acceptable and not. And one thing that a lot of people don't like and that shouldn't be allowed is secret or covert nudging. Mm -hmm. So if, if you're doing stuff that you're not transparent about, that's a really big problem. And uh, in a free society, agreed, that's uh, either presumptively or just decisively Verboten. Yeah. And that's also the kind of thing, you know, I'm a, you know, my, my, my inner neocon and by that, I do not mean uh, regime change guy. I mean, uh, law of unintended consequences guy, um, uh, you know, Irving Crystal neocon. Um, and one of the unintended consequences, I think that sort of progressive, technocrats have gotten themselves into time and time again is working from the assumption that they know best. And then when the public finds out that they were making decisions on their behalf without fully looping them in, you get big populist backlashes that tend to tear down even the good stuff. And so I, I, transparency, I mean, I'm, I'm contradictory on this. I think we need a little less transparency in some parts of our politics. But, um, you know, I think the smoke-filled rooms are important. My colleague Yuval Levin points out you cannot negotiate on C-SPAN. just doesn't work. Um, but when it comes to things like the nudging, I think it's really, really important to let people know up front we are we're slightly tilting the policy scales towards this outcome, but here are the ways you have the right to exit from this. You know, right to exit is a huge thing for me. Completely. So on transparency, we might want to distinguish between input transparency and output transparency. So if, you know, James Madison participated in closing of the Constitutional Convention, and Thomas Jefferson said that's an abominable precedent. And Madison basically said, really? We wouldn't have gotten the Constitution unless it was closed. The minds of people were changing. And much was to be gained, he said, by a yielding and accommodating spirit. Good luck with that. If everything's in public, people right. get all dug in. So for internal deliberations, uh, well, big yellow lights about just putting that on C-SPAN. But for things that are outputs of government policy, whether it's, you know, uh, the fuel economy label right. or the graphic warnings for cigarettes or automatic enrollment in anything, 
uh, to let the public know about it before it's finalized such that people can comment. So it might be a dumb nudge. It might be something where you're automatically enrolling people in something that's going to hurt a lot of people and they're just not going to bother to opt out. And the government shouldn't do that. And this is a Hayekian point, really not about markets, but about public input mm -hmm. into things that are, let's say, market constraining. Uh, I hope not market eliminating nudges or market constraining. Uh, but to have, just because the public is going to know a ton of stuff. I saw this in Washington, by the way. And it really surprised me because it's inconsistent with what the law professors think. And the it is that the public comment process just elicits, if public officials are paying attention, a ton of things that the smartest public officials, the most, you know, ideologically neutral public officials couldn't possibly anticipate. Yeah. They'll hear something from uh, Ohio or Nevada or something that'll show that they were going in the wrong direction. Yeah, that's, I mean, the, there are things I enjoy more reading in Hayek, but if I could do required reading for policymakers from Hayek, it's, it's not the road to serfdom. It's the knowledge, it's the knowledge problem essay, you know, I mean, just the inability for people from Washington to know the particular is closest on the ground in a diverse continental nation. It's just, it's impossible. And so I understand the policy has to come from Washington, but if you, the more feedback you get from the rest of the country where they can tell stories about how this policy would mess them up, that would be really important. Completely. And there are regulations under the Obama administration, I know, that were just uh, abandoned because people explained that they were, really weren't good ideas. Yeah. Maybe more should have been abandoned that were abandoned, but <laughs> some people certainly think that. But some were abandoned just because uh, the dispersed knowledge that citizens have fed its way into the government. All right. Well, I could do this again. I hope you could do this again. We love that. If we end up doing the dog thing, we'll definitely be doing something like this again. Um, Weekly. And um, uh, Cass Sunstein, thanks so much for coming on. And uh We'll hopefully have you back sooner rather than later. It was a great pleasure. Thank you, Jonah. Okay, so Cass has left the feed and I screwed up. I didn't get him to say, no, you won't. This is a podcast. Um, that's uh, it's a faux pas for which I will never forgive myself. And um, But fortunately, now that I'm a suit at the dispatch, even though I'm entirely to blame, I have plenty of people I can actually put the blame on instead um, and punish for my own shortcomings. That's, that's one of the best things about being a boss. Um, so anyway, uh, I thought that stuff was really interesting. I'm curious what, what listeners think about it. Um, I could have gone all day about the dog stuff. Um, we had a bit of what we internally at the dispatch call the Tyler Callen problem of uh, short, concise answers that leave me reeling to come up with the next question. Uh, but I think Gassenstein is sort of a fascinating and interesting guy. And hopefully we can figure out how to do this, uh, this dog book together. Stay tuned about all of that. Um, I had a lot of great responses to the audio G file thing that I did last week. So I'm going to give it a try again. I'm going to revisit this Adrian Vermeule thing that I wrote about in the members only edition of, uh, my midweek epistle. 
Um, and, um, but that does remind me, there are a bunch of people who said, gosh, I wish this was open to the public because I'd like to share it far and wide. This is a, you know, this is part of our business strategy from the beginning with the newsletters is that the early adapters to, or adopters who we are deeply, deeply grateful to, you know, the people who signed up from the beginning, um, or close to the beginning, and we still think we're in the beginning. So if you signed up and you're a paying member of the dispatch, yeah, you're a, you're a, you're a founding father or mother of, of this bizarre um, uh, pirate skiff that we've launched. Um, but part of the idea is that you're allowed to, you know, at least technologically, we can't stop you to forward the um, the members only newsletters to whomever you want. Um, eventually, we're going to have technology to deal with some of these things. But in the beginning, we think that the word of mouth from people like you, or most of the people like you, because there are probably some people out here who are listening to this who are not fans of the Dispatch and not maybe not fans of mine, but they follow around Cass Sunstein like Grateful Dead groupies, and that's fine. Welcome aboard. Regardless, sending, um, you know, forwarding emails around saying this is the kind of stuff that you get, whether it's David's newsletters or mine or the work by Tom Jocelyn, who, you know, for those of you who don't know, is um, considered must reading inside the Pentagon, must reading inside the State Department, must reading inside the CIA. Um, I know for a fact that there are there are major officials who consider him more knowledgeable about um, the war in Afghanistan and the war on terror stuff than a lot of policymakers and a lot of briefers of policymakers. Um, and if you find something useful in there and you know somebody who might be a... a, a you know, willing to sign up for the free versions of our stuff or, or pay, please do. You know, we, you know, we want to get the word out and we are hoping that you guys can help us with that. Um, and of course, the same thing holds for the morning dispatch, whether you get the free or light version or get the full thing. If you know people who um, would be uh, good members of the family, we'd love to have them. Anyway, uh, beyond that, I got to go walk my canines and, or perambulate my canines and I got to write a column and, um, and I got to clean up my house, which is mired in a kind of squalor that is only possible when, uh, you when I am left alone. Um, and I, if I want to stay married to the fair Jessica, um, I have a lot of work to do. So with that, um, I'll see you next time. Ha. This stuff is gold. Make sure you keep this part in. <laughs> 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.